All right, everyone, let's get started. Um, what I want to do today is finish off the bias discussion from last class with the institutional bias subject, and then get into two cases that I thought uh, were quite interesting and illustrate for Taseko, both an application of the Baker factors and an explanation of the concept of the Audi Ultram Partum rule in its sort of most uh, clear context. I simply didn't know submissions that were being made against my position, as the argument is at least asserted. And then we're going to get into the blend co and the question of delay and how that lands in the administrative context. Um, The institutional bias discussion that we had from last week, or last class, uh, left over, you'll remember is this question of what happens when it's not simply that there is a decision maker that I've got a problem with, that they know something about the case, or they seem to have a predisposition towards one side or other in the, in the uh, dispute, but rather there's something that's happening on an institutional level that makes it look like there's going to be a problem in a lot of cases. So that's the institutional bias. You're saying, I don't, I'm not alleging that you personally can't decide this fairly. I'm alleging there's something about the structure or what's going on on a broader institutional level that is making it the case that it looks like a lot of different people would have a hard time deciding the matter fairly. And the book does a good job, I think, of setting out um, the tension behind an institutional bias claim, which is, on the one hand, administrative bodies are often charged with setting policy, you know, governing the subject matter within their jurisdiction, and making decisions about how that industry or that group of regulated people is going to move in one direction or another, and that's not a problem in and of itself. The problem is when that sort of policy setting, setting the direction broadly, how the uh, tribunal or the uh, administrative agency more broadly, when setting the direction leads to an impression that in individual cases are not going to be decided strictly on their merits, but rather in furtherance of that direction that you're pushing the tribunal. That probably sounds a little bit abstract, but let's give an example. So, you know, you're all going to be regulated by the law society, of course, and the law society has ideas about how the practice of law should go, the reforms that need to happen for more efficient, accountable uh, legal practice. One area that is uh, sort of hot button right now is money laundering, proceeds of crime and money laundering, and people potentially using lawyers as a way to launder money through their trust accounts. Um, there's now rules on how much cash you can accept as a retainer, other things like that aimed at this, um, this problem. And so clearly if you're going to try to keep track of lawyers uh, to ensure there's not money laundering, Record keeping is hugely important. You need to make sure that lawyers are keeping detailed records that you can review to ensure that their transactions are not suspicious and not indicative of money laundering activities. And so it is absolutely fine for the law society to set policies 
to pursue regulations, to give guidance, um, to increase training, all these sorts of things aimed at a goal of furthering better record keeping. That's fine. But if the Law Society were to send a directive to all of its panels, to all of its um, disciplinary panels, saying, hey, we got to come down hard on record keeping problems. You need to give anybody who's accused of record keeping um, failures a significant penalty. Well, that crosses the line now into institutional bias, where you're no longer just um, applying the law and fairly to individual cases, but you're rather trying to sway the whole tribunal towards some other aim, which you know may result in a bias uh, appearance in a large number of cases. So that's this tension. I think the book hits on nicely between, on the one hand, you can set policy. On the other hand, you can't predispose your uh, adjudicative arm towards one outcome or another in the furtherance of a specific policy. Does that distinction make sense? Okay. So I'm going to move kind of quickly because I do want to get into the materials for today. Um, I'm going to move kind of quickly through institutional bias. But the book talks about four um, sort of areas or problems that can give rise to institutional bias concerns. The first one it talks about is full board meetings. And these are instances where you have an adjudicative body, like the residential tenancy branch, that has a number of different adjudicators. I think there's about 30 Residential Tenancy Act adjudicators at any time. And sometimes they get together and they talk about problems that they've had and there are directions that are set forward for the tribunal on how to respond to common problems. And there may be an attempt to gain certain consistency in how specific issues are dealt with by the board. But where that can lead to a problem is, you know, let's say you have a decision maker who hears your case, and then the next week, while they're still have your decision under reserve, they haven't told you if you win or lose yet, they go to a full board meeting where all their colleagues are talking about the very issue you had argued. Now all of a sudden, is it your decision maker who's making the decision? Or is the decision being imposed on them, or at least influenced, by this full board? So that's where the full board meeting problem can arise. You want to have the decision makers who are entrusted with the decision have the ability to make that decision without undue pressure from other members of the tribunal. Okay, so that's the full board meeting issue. The book also talks about lead cases as another institutional bias source potentially and this happens where a board or a tribunal gets just a whack of similar cases all at once and those uh, the board or tribunal may say well geez we we now have 150 very similar cases we've got 30 adjudicators 
And we're going to look like fools if these 150 cases go, you know, 150 different ways, if, they, if, they, if there's no consistency in the outcomes. And you remember, of course, that boards, boards and tribunals don't have the same stare decisis rules. They don't have the same horizontal stare decisis rules as the courts. Um, they're allowed to go different ways on the same facts, so long as most, both outcomes are reasonable. Uh, getting back into that tricky question in a couple of weeks' time when we talk more about substantive judicial review. But one solution that boards have come up with when they're faced with this whack of similar cases all at once with a bunch of decision makers is they say, okay, let's take one or two of these cases that are broadly exemplary of the others and let's have those decided first Let's have those decided carefully with full good submissions, and let's have a, um, uh, we'll have good written reasons given in this. And then we'll use that as a precedent that we will try to follow to ensure some consistency. Now, is the board allowed to ensure consistency amongst its own decisions? Absolutely. When I say that the board does have to follow their own decisions, that is, the court won't impose a requirement upon them to do so. But if the board itself wants to take steps to ensure consistency, you know, absolutely fine. Guidance, etc. And so a lead decision is an acceptable way to try to introduce better consistency. That's not a problem in and of itself. What is a problem, though, is if that lead decision, that lead case, is somehow skewed towards a particular outcome. Because then you have this lead decision that isn't fair, maybe seems like it was sort of set up to be not fair, and then the ripple effects are no longer just about that one case, but they go through the whole institution. And so you get to an institutional bias concern. And the book has an example within the immigration context of a, um, a huge uh, chunk of cases dealing with Roma refugees and a decision being made to do a lead case approach to try to grapple with all these cases. But then uh, it was Justice Evans, I believe, so an excellent administrative law judge, said, when I look at all the different choices that were made, it appears that this case was set up so as to limit the number of successful refugee claimants. So Justice Evans says, this decision has been uh, made in a way that's predisposed towards a particular outcome. That's not acceptable. And the fact that it's rippled through all these other cases gives rise to an institutional bias concern. So I want you to draw a distinction between, is it OK to try to introduce consistency by having a lead case system? Absolutely. Is it okay to use that lead case to push a particular policy, you know, to influence the way the decisions are going to go in one way or the other? No. Consistency is okay, but pushing for a particular outcome, you know, amongst your um, adjudi various adjudicators, that's where you get into a bias concern. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Um, two more quick things on institutional bias before we get into the, uh, the cases for today. 
The book talks about uh, adjudicative independence and the legislative process. And here the idea is that you need to bear in mind these administrative bodies often have a dialogue directly with the legislature because they have the specialized expertise. So if you want to do some reforms to the nuclear safety codes of Canada, it makes sense to talk to the Nuclear Safety Commission? Like, of course it does, right? Um, and so any number of these adjudicative or administrative bodies may also be asked to share some of their expertise with the legislature when it's designing and amending uh, legislation that applies to them. Where this can be a problem is if there is a, uh, a the legislature consults with the tribunal creates legislation or policy, and then the tribunal is called upon to opine on that legislation or policy directly. So the book has this example of a uh, policy that was set forward by, I think, the Alberta government in relation to labor relations. They go to the Labor Relations Board to get help with that policy then a union wants to challenge the fairness of that policy, and the body that is uh, able to consider a challenge to that policy is the same board that consulted on the creation of the policy. And so this is an example where you would say there, there doesn't seem to be um, you know, a fair process here. There seems to be some institutional bias in favor of this policy that they helped create. So, you know, it's one thing to um, opine on the legislation, which you know, is binding upon you. And there may be some difficulties around the margins where if you really favor a particular interpretation of the legislation, um, and you've let that be known to the legislature, and then there's an argument against that interpretation, you can run into problems. But with the policies, that's where you really are gonna run into problems more likely when it's the government setting a policy uh, because you have this policy being set, you have a policy being set, and then the body that's supposed to be able to evaluate that policy being involved in setting of the policy. That's kind of the dynamic that can be a problem. So how do you avoid that? Well, just make sure that it's, it's one thing to ask an administrative agency for its opinion about a particular policy direction. It's but make sure that that administrative agency isn't also tasked with reviewing that policy as part of its mandate. This doesn't come up very often. This is a pretty obscure thing, but I, I think it's an interesting idea to just bear in mind the advisory role that tribunals can have and how that advisory role can interface with their more adjudicative role and give rise to potential bias concerns. Yeah. Uh, question. Uh, so we have this case of Morris VC Minister of Education. There, the appellant or the applicant argued that the Minister of Education was biased, as an institutional bias, to cut off all the funds for 
the special education. And Jesus Malakman and the case said it, it's beyond, it's too far to actually argue. Which means the Supreme Court did not consider that as an institutional bias, which is the same definition as we talked about before here. If a tribunal or, a, or an agency does something like that, why is this different there? I'm not sure if that's a fair Is that the Moore case you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't really have an answer off the top of my head. I would have to review that case. Um, so I'm. So the very short gist of it is uh, the Minister of Education cut all funds on special education. Mm -hmm. And this mother of this child, Moore, she argued that uh, it deprived her child of her special education rights. Yeah. So the code did give the rights and benefits to the child, but did not or did not consider this argument that the institutional bias. Are it's an institutional yeah. bias. Again, bias. I'd have to review that part of the case. Um, you know, I, I that case was decided under Section 15 of the Charter. Yes, and not more so of human rights arguments. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I like the question, but I can't um, can't really answer off the top of my head. Thank you. Though that's good. Um, okay, so the final institutional bias source that they talk about is one that I've uh, alluded to a couple of times, and that's multifunctionality. The idea that you're going to have the same adjudicative body have, or sorry, the same administrative body have both an adjudicative arm and a prosecutorial arm. And you'll remember I talked about, you know, God forbid one of you gets in trouble with the law society, who's going to hear your, um, your complaint? It's the law society. They're going to set a, a law society panel. This going to include a bencher of the law society, a lay uh, individual, and a non-bencher member of the legal profession. But they are a law society panel. And who's going to prosecute your claim? It's going to be the law society, and they're probably going to hire a really expensive, really good lawyer to do it. So, is that fair to have the law society both prosecute and decide your claim? Well, under a pure common law, um, natural justice, it, it's probably a problem, depending on the scope of procedural fairness required for you. But quite often, it's explicitly set out in the legislation that this is how it's going to be set up. And the Law Society certainly uh, has that set out in the Legal Professions Act. And so when it's set out like that, um, you have to bow to the will of Parliament, of course. It's OK to do so. The procedural justice, or procedural fairness, natural justice rules will only get you so far. But the court will look to make sure that there is, in the implementation of that format, sufficient um, internal separation between the two arms. You know, they're going to want to see minimal, if any, contact between the adjudicative and the prosecutorial arms of the, uh, of the internal tribunal. They're not going to want to hear that the prosecutor as some sort of internal channel to talk to the decision makers. So while the legislation may say on a big picture setup, it's okay to have one uh, body have a prosecutorial and an adjudicative arm, 
in its implementation, the court might look pretty carefully to make sure that internal safeguards have been established to minimize any potential interference or even appearance of interference. And you also want to bear in mind that just because some tribunals or administrative bodies have been designed to have this two-arm setup, that doesn't mean that it uh, doesn't pose problems, and it doesn't mean that a tribunal necessarily could choose on its own to have that sort of an arrangement if the legislation didn't require it. So for instance, the residential tenancy branch doesn't have a prosecutorial arm for um, landlord-tenant disputes. But if it were to say, you know, hey, I, I really think that tenants have a, uh, have a hard time, and so we are going to start a new policy where every tenant gets a advocate on their behalf who is going to be a, a residential tenancy branch employee who's going to argue the case as, as well as possible for that tenant. Now, that might be a problem. Um, you can't just of your own volition necessarily set up that type of an arrangement. It's one thing for the statute to require it. It's another thing for the board to impose it itself. When the statute requires it, of course, the rule of parliament, if the board imposes it itself, that could be a strong apprehension of institutional bias if that were to be um, attempted. So that all makes sense. That was pretty quick. All right. I just um, do know that we have a lot to get through, so I wanted to get through that institutional bias. Important concept to keep in mind. Uh, bias generally is, as I stressed last week, a hard concept, something you're going to be asked to argue, and it's important to be uh, you know, confident as to what you can and can't argue in relation to bias. But let's keep going. Um, I want to talk about the Taseco case first and then get into the uh, Blenco case. Taseco is a fascinating matter. I actually worked on this case um, at the federal court level, and then I left Department of Justice. Um, I think I wrote the factum, actually, for this. But the, um, I wasn't involved in the hearing. I actually had never read the appeal decision until uh, this week, which is sort of a funny thing, that you work so hard on something, and the decision comes out, and you don't even bother. Um, so, what this case was, was a, it's about a gold mine. Um, it's a gold mine near Williams Lake, British Columbia, if anybody's from that area. And in that area, uh, there's a First Nation, the Silcotine, um, and the Silcotine National Government. And I imagine that that name is familiar to you from their successful land claim. Uh, where they obtained Aboriginal title, or they didn't obtain it, they had their title they've always had recognized by the, uh, by the courts of Canada. And the title area um, isn't the full extent of their common law rights claim, the Silco team. They also claimed, they claimed title to one area, and then rights to hunt, fish, trap, etc., in a broader area. 
So the new Prosperity gold copper mine is proposed to be built not in their title zone, but within their broader rights claim, the area where they have a, a rights claim. And that rights claim has not been finally adjudicated yet. So a mine like this has got a complex regulatory environment that you have to navigate through. There's very little that's more difficult than getting an authorization for a major infrastructure project in terms of the regulatory hurdles to overcome. Mines are right up there in terms of how difficult it is to get authorization because they touch on so many different aspects of the environment. They are broadly provincially regulated, but there are certain elements of the environment that the mine that mines affect and those which are within federal jurisdiction. So you need both federal and provincial approval to construct a large-scale mine almost invariably. So what you had in Taseco was it's a long story, but it starts with a proposal to build what they call the Prosperity Mine. And the Prosperity Mine has a design which um, is going to construct a tailings pond, a tailings facility. You need to need somewhere to put, basically, a lot of the stuff you're taking out of the ground. You want to get it underwater, which will prevent um, some of the harmful chemicals, et cetera, that are in there from getting out broad, more broadly into the environment. So you're creating a tailings pond, and they had the, the plan to uh, destroy a lake to construct their tailings facility. They had the bad luck of choosing to destroy the lake called Fish Lake, because apparently there's a lake called Wasp Lake they could have used also right next door. And probably would rather be arguing against Wasp Lake than Fish Lake. But they, they said, we're going to destroy Fish Lake. They go through the BC environmental assessment process. And the BC says, OK, this is fine. You have your approval. There's environmental effects, but you know we're, we're willing to tolerate them for the benefits that this will create for the Williams Lake area and the jobs that will be created for the local economy and the benefits for the broader economy. But you also had to go through a federal environmental assessment process because of the impacts mostly on fish and fish habitat under the Fisheries Act, which is a federal, an area of federal jurisdiction. And the federal government says no. And this was a big surprise because it was the Harper government um, and there was a uh, yeah, a sense, I think, that you could push most things through environmental assessments. It wasn't going to be a matter of if, it was going to be more a matter of how. They might impose conditions, but you would get things through. Uh, but they said, no, this is, this is going to have these significant adverse environmental effects, and they're not justified in the circumstances. So what does Taseco do? Well, they accept that decision, and they go back and they redesign the mine. And they now call it the New Prosperity Gold Copper Mine Project. 
and they go for uh, approval again. And the BC government says, well, okay, you, we approved it last time, and you made it less uh, environmentally destructive, so great, you, know, you certainly have approval again this time. The federal government says, okay, we will review it again under um, the Environmental Assessment Act. It was the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012, one of the first projects to be reviewed under that legislation. And they send it to a review panel for a detailed investigation of the mine and its impacts on the environment. And so I wanted to show you a little bit about the sort of level of detail that goes into this regulatory project. So when you're dealing with a regulator like the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency, and a review, like a full panel review under that act. Would you have a question, sir? Oh, no, sorry, I thought I saw it. No problem. Um, you have an enormous regulatory project ahead of you. And so quite um, fairly, I think, there's a lot of visibility that the government uh, has given the public into how these regulatory processes work. And you can, in fact, go on the government website and see all the documents that were filed within that environmental assessment process. And uh, you, if you search for the New Prosperity Gold Copper Mine, uh, you can land on this, this home page which describes the project, uh, some you know, facts about it, its location. You see there right near Williams Lake in the middle of the province. Um, you see that you know, the decision statement is issued in 2014. And if you go to list all records, this is where you get this website where you can look at literally everything that's been filed. And you, know, you see it's 1,700 documents that have been filed. And some of these are long, like 1,000-page environmental impact statements. So just tons of material goes to this um, panel, this expert review panel that has scientific Aboriginal consultation and um, sort of governance expertise. And what do they give? Ultimately, they give their report, which as you see is a 300-page report issued on you know, Halloween of eight years ago. And if you just go to the contents, you can see the scope of what they're looking at. Um, the need for and purpose of the project, then they get into all different expert specific scientific questions, uh, hydrogeology, hydrology, the effect on fish and fish habitat, effect on vegetation, wildlife, the atmosphere, human health, Aboriginal matters, Aboriginal rights and titles, socioeconomic concerns, you know, other issues, environmental management. It's just a gigantic uh, undertaking to go through one of these reviews. And what does the panel say? Well, they say, we think that this project, even in its redesigned, uh, uh, you know, redesigned plan, is going to cause significant adverse environmental effects. So this is where the whole regulatory scheme gets pretty complicated. 
And the way this all works, and if you've taken environmental law, you know, you've heard this before, but if you haven't, the way it works is you do this, you, there's this panel that gives a report which gives advice on having gone through this lengthy expert review, hearings, public hearings, Does this expert panel uh, suggest the project will cause significant adverse environmental effects? If so, then that goes to the Minister of Environment for a decision as to whether she, it was um, she, uh, Minister Leona Agluck at this time, whether she accepts that conclusion that the project is likely to cause significant adverse environmental effects. So we've seen so far two decision points, or two you know, main points. The panel sets out its recommendation that it will or will not cause these effects. The Minister of Environment either accepts or doesn't accept that recommendation. If she accepts it and says, okay, panel says it will cause significant adverse environmental effects, I accept that it will cause significant adverse environmental effects. The project then goes to the governor and council for a decision as to whether those significant adverse environmental effects are nevertheless justified in the circumstances. And if the governor and council says, yes, those effects are justified in the circumstances, then it issues a certificate saying you can proceed with the project. If the governor and council says those effects are not justified in the circumstances, then it refuses to issue a certificate. And that means that no federal decision maker can do anything to further the project. And that means the fisheries minister can't issue permits that would allow the project to be constructed. And that kills the project. So complex regulatory scheme to get through, you have these three main points, the panel's recommendation, the minister's decision whether to accept or not accept that recommendation, then the governor and council's decision as to whether uh, the effects that have been found are justified in the circumstances. Just to remind you, the governor and council um, phrase you've heard before, I'm sure, but the governor and council is in practice cabinet. Theoretically, it's the governor general acting upon the advice and direction of cabinet, but this is a, a cabinet decision. The ministers of government together making this choice as to whether the project is justified. It's pretty complex. Is there any questions at this point about that? Set up. All right. Um, so, Taseco goes through the panel process. The panel report is issued in October of 2013. Taseco immediately files an application for judicial review of the panel report, saying that this panel report has got some manifest flaws in it. Um, any number of complaints were raised against 
the panel report itself. Um, you call that Judicial Review 1, JR 1. Five months later, four months later or so, in February of 2014, the Minister of Environment issues a decision statement which reveals, A, that she accepted the panel's conclusion that this would cause significant adverse environmental effects, and B, that the governor and council decided those effects are not justified in the circumstances. So she issues a decision statement revealing to Taseko, you're not getting your certificate, you're not gonna be allowed to proceed with new prosperity. What does Taseko do in response to that? They file another judicial review application, call that JR2. So you've got JR1 is reviewing the panel report itself, the panel process that led to that report also. JR2 is reviewing the decisions of the minister and governor and council and the process that led to those decisions. So that all makes sense on a big framing. All right. So what we have here is the appeal of the decision on JR2. So this is about the minister and governor and council's decisions. And specifically, what Taseko attacks is the fairness of the process it was afforded before the minister and governor and council decisions. And its concerns largely stem around the access that the Silco team had to decision makers. And specifically, they take issue with meetings the Silco team had and with a submission the Silco team made to the government. And what they say is that these meetings, while done in the framework of discharging the duty to consult, violated my procedural fairness as Taseko because I wasn't made aware of these meetings or what was said and I wasn't afforded an opportunity to respond and I wasn't given this submission and I wasn't given a chance to respond. So you can certainly see where they're coming from. If you have a decision maker, meeting with somebody who is adverse in interest to you and the decision you want made, ordinarily, you would think fairness would require you be notified of that, you'd be told what was communicated, and you'd be given a chance to respond. Just a few more sort of contextual details the meetings that Taseko was concerned with took place on, I believe, October 8th. It's today, right? So eight years ago today, of 2013. That is before the panel had even 
issued its report, which you might recall was Halloween, so a few weeks earlier. And the other contextual thing to know is that Taseko was lobbying like crazy throughout the entire period um, following the conclusion of the panel's hearings up to the issuance of its report and all the way through to the decision of the minister. They had multiple meetings with government officials. They submitted you know, op-eds to the papers. They had the Minister of Mines of British Columbia fly out to try to influence federal decision makers. They hired an old chief of, um, of the Silco team who was in favor of the project to go lobby in Ottawa to sort of say, you know, the leadership of the Silco team doesn't represent all of the people here. We, we have people who are in favor of this project. So there's a, there's a nuance there, a contextual factor there to keep in mind that it's not as if Taseko was sitting on his hands this whole time while the First Nation was getting access. Taseko was seeking as much access as it could conceivably get to put as much pressure on the decision makers to decide in its favor, which as long as you're within the rules of natural justice is of course fully permissible. So, That's broadly the setup. That's broadly the dispute that's going to come before the courts. Was it okay for the minister and other government officials to meet with the Silco team and not tell Taseko about the meeting and not give them a chance to respond to things raised in that meeting? And was it okay for the government to take this submission from the Silco team um, and consider it in relation to this minister and government council decision? And again, not give that to DeSeco and not give it an opportunity to respond. Yeah? So does duty to answer fall under the spectrum of the right? That's kind of the whole idea we're getting at. So we'll, we'll answer that throughout the course of this discussion. But um, just to like at the outset, what you have is a, another obligation on the government beyond its obligations to afford procedural fairness to somebody appearing before an administrative tribunal, which can come into conflict, is at least Taseko's view, with the government's proper discharge of its procedural obligations to a proponent of a project. You want to bear in mind, though, the different sources of these obligations. What's the source of the duty to consult? Yeah, the Constitution, right? Section 35 of the Constitution, Act 1982, and also the broader concept of the honor of the crown, which is a quasi-constitutionalized principle. So you have a constitutional duty to consult up against the common law duty of natural justice and procedural fairness. So in the event of a direct conflict, you know, who would you put your money on winning? Constitution. The Constitution, right? Exactly. So So just, just to make clear, uh, the tribunal meeting the First Nation or one of our nations which was super friends as well as uh how we consult. Well we'll we'll get to this like the, yeah, it's more complicated than that. Um, 
decipher our notes. All right, so, so getting into the, uh, the decision now, you have the Federal Court of Appeal. Uh, it's a very good panel. You've got Justice DeMontigny writes the decision. He's an excellent judge. And then you may have noticed Justice Stratus, who I spoke about previously, was also on the panel. So you've got extremely high admin-law aptitude on this panel. And they end up ultimately dismissing the application, the appeal, and confirming the lower court decision of Justice Phelan which dismissed the judicial review. So let's talk about why. The first thing that you'll note, and I just want to highlight this for your, um, to, to remind you, when you bring a judicial review application and you lose, you bring an appeal of that uh, decision that you lost on judicial, the judicial review application, that federal court decision, when you go up to the appeal, you basically get to argue the whole thing over again. There's very little deference to the lower level decision because the appeal court is basically in the same position as that lower level decision. There's one exception that's mentioned in the case, and that is when there is evidence presented to the lower court that was not part of the tribunal's record. It was not something that was, just came from the record of what was before the tribunal. And specifically what you're talking about here is when somebody on an application for judicial review brings in new affidavit evidence which is then subject to cross-examination, potentially, and decided upon by the lower court. Its findings in relation to that type of evidence is entitled to deference. But generally speaking, the Federal Court of Appeal, apart from that little uh, caveat, steps into the shoes of the, sorry, it's lights like shining in my eyes, um, steps into the shoes of the lower court, federal court, and just does it again. So, you know, when you have a judicial review process, you, in essence, get two kicks at the can. So the court starts by considering the Baker factors in relation to the decision by the minister to accept the recommendation from the panel that there would be significant adverse environmental effects from this project. And this is a quite an interesting, I think, application of the Baker factors. Because the court, the lower court concludes and the Court of Appeal agrees that at this stage of the administrative process, the duty of fairness owed is minimal. That might strike you as surprising because you think, oh my God, it's a billion dollar mine at stake. And you're really telling me that this is a minimal procedural fairness situation. 
But broadly, the reason that the court is able to conclude that the fairness owed at this stage, at the minister decision stage, is minimal, is because you got so much fairness at the panel review stage. Before you saw that 300-page report, you had 1,700 documents flying back and forth. You had a lengthy oral hearing before a panel. You had lawyers there. You were cross-examining people. You were hearing from witnesses. You were getting disclosure. So you have this statutory scheme which contemplates extremely high procedural protections at this first level. So Taseko tries to say, well, I also should get more protections at the higher level where the actual important decisions are made. But that argument is rejected. They say, when we're talking about this decision before the minister, this doesn't look like a judicial process at all. This is the minister looking at a recommendation from a government decision maker with no real obligation to hear further submissions or to have a further oral hearing, but rather just to decide whether this recommendation should be accepted or not. The statutory scheme has no right to make submissions to the minister unless the minister so requests. So the scheme explicitly says the minister can ask you questions, but you don't have a right generally to just go say, I don't like this panel report for this, this, and this reasons. And they say the importance of the decision certainly is high, but you can't look at that in the absence of considering the other factor of the high fairness you were granted at the lower level. So what I like about this case is I've talked about how the nature of the statutory scheme, um, you know, you're looking at things like, is there an internal appeal right that might call for less fairness at the lower level decision? But here's an example of how the higher level decision attracts less fairness because of what's afforded at the lower level. And so it's a reminder that you need to look at the statutory scheme as a whole and consider holistically what was afforded to this person when they came before this tribunal. Here, you had as much process as I could imagine at the lower level, and that's going to limit what I would demand, but I will say common law requires at the higher level. So what then about the interrelation of the duty to consult and procedural fairness. And Taseko, you know, in essence, says, just do both. Do your consultation. Have any meetings you need to do those consultations. But comply with your fairness obligation to let me know what happened at those meetings. Comply with your fairness obligation to let me know anything that is adverse to my interests that occurred at those meetings and give me a chance to respond. But the court says it's not that easy. 
And the court says, that to go ahead with an approach which would say that a proponent has a right to know and respond to all adverse information provided during consultation would trivialize the duty to consult and empty it of its true content. Because in essence, then, you're just treating this duty to consult on equal footing with the common law obligation owed to anybody involved in a procedural or in an uh, administrative process. You're just saying duty to consult. Uh, allows submissions to be had, and those submissions will be treated no different than if a landowner had a problem. They would be given to the proponent. And against this, uh, or behind this, is the backdrop of there's a broad spectrum of relationships between proponents and Aboriginal groups, of course. You certainly get some proponents who take a long time to foster very positive relationships with local Aboriginal groups and do, frankly, a lot better before having done so. You also get proponents, and I'll say it, like Taseko, who have not done that, and in fact have extremely adversarial relationships with First Nations. I mean, Taseko and the Silkotin don't like each other. So if you're trying to discharge your constitutional obligation to the Silco team through meeting with them to understand their concerns about their constitutionally protected rights, if you say to them, just so you know, everything you say here, I'm going to tell to Taseko and give them an opportunity to argue against your position, you are undercutting and undermining the duty to consult. It's going to be much more difficult to effectively discharge that duty when either in practice, you know, there's a, there'll be a rep from Taseko here listening, or in essence, they're not here, but they might as well be because I'm going to tell them everything you said. That type of a process does not uh, help further the duty to consult. So you see here this interrelation between the duty to consult and procedural fairness, and the court saying that in affording procedural fairness, we are going to be careful not to go so far as to undermine efficient and effective discharge of the duty to consult. What they do say, though, and we'll get to it, I'm jumping to the conclusion a bit, is that if new adverse information prejudicial to the proponent comes out during consultation, you may have a duty to disclose that and give that an opportunity to respond. But if it's not new, it's just the same complaints being given over and over again, 
or it's not prejudicial, it doesn't really affect you. This is about some other concern altogether. You as a proponent have no right to hear it and no right to respond. It's kind of fundamentally where this lands. So I'm going to go through a bit more about the uh, doing a time. Um, I'll finish off this case. I've only got about another five, ten minutes, and then we'll take our break. Um, so a few sort of other points that come out of this. One important thing to take away from this case, and I've mentioned it before, but it's an ongoing issue in administrative law. When you have a procedural fairness concern, you're supposed to raise it right away with the decision maker. You remember me saying, you know, maybe somewhat, it can be humorous, but that idea of having to go to the decision maker and saying, you're biased. Well, here what you had was, one of Taseko's main concerns was this meeting, this October 8th meeting between the minister and the and, uh, Silco team, right? And Taseko says, you needed to tell us about this. You needed to tell us what happened at this meeting. And the federal court said, well, sorry, you knew about this meeting right away because you monitor the chief's Facebook. We know you do that. And he posted about it. Like, right away, you knew about this immediately. You didn't do anything about it. You just sat back. And you only complained about it after the decision was made against you. And this is the kind of fundamental equity that, that um, this idea is aimed at preserving. Yeah. Yeah. And the court of say something like that, oh, just because you follow him or her on Facebook, so uh, we are we're assuming that you are supposed to know everything. Is it a formal way to know everything, the social media? Well, this one, um, I was actually in the room. We got the guy to admit that he, he saw his Facebook post and cross-examination. Can you say something like that? Um, well, it's all, that's a matter of evidence. Like, could you prove that you knew about this just because you followed them? A strong presumption. You'd probably have to explain how you didn't see that. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's even more nefarious than that. It's not like the, you know, Taseko Mines LTD friends, um, you know, chief. But they, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make up accounts or get people who aren't obviously Taseko to go and, and get, you know, become friends with them. But we had some disclosure, found some chatter about the Facebook messages, and it was clear that they were, they were looking at them. So there may be an evidentiary issue there. But I really want to land this big point, uh, which is that when you have a, um, when you have a procedural concern that arises in your mind, aha, you met with Silco Teen on this date, and I wasn't told about that meeting, and I wasn't given a chance to respond. Taseko had two choices, right? One is to write to the minister and say, hey, saw you met with Silco team. What's going on here? What happened at that meeting? And I want a meeting too. Or they had the choice to say, let's put that in our back pocket and I'll complain about that if the decision goes against me. No. 
Now, maybe it wasn't intentional, but in effect, that's what they did. And you're not allowed to just store up your procedural objections. To say, okay, if this goes against me, I'll complain about the process and get a second review, get, you know, get the decision set aside. Rather, the obligation is to bring them forward, not just because it seems unfair that you store back these objections, but also because while the admin process is ongoing, you might be able to fix it. You might be able to do something that addresses any prejudice arising from this process. You might be able to say, okay, I'll sit down with you for half an hour to say, go, now it's fair. So that's a, an important issue that I really want you to not lose in sort of the, um, the way this class has been taught, that that's not a sort of specific case on that, but that idea that when you have a procedural objection, you're supposed to raise it as soon as you can and raise it to the decision maker. Uh, that's, a, that's a key point to, to keep with you. And also here, um, Taseko says, well, you can't have expected us to raise this objection because they didn't even tell us about the meeting. It was only by our own sort of efforts that we found out about it. And the court says, that doesn't matter. I don't care how you found out. Once you thought there was something unfair that was happening, you had a duty to raise it no matter how you found out about it. Um, okay, so court then gets into the whole, you know what, let's take a break actually. I'm going to get into Audi, Ultra, and Partum, and then we'll do Blanco. Um, so let's, let's take a quick 10 minute break now, and we'll come back and I'll, I'll talk about how the court tackled the Audi, Ultra, and Partum issue. All right, so... The final part of the Taseko case I want to get into is how do they uh, finally analyze the procedural fairness concerns of Taseko? Because ultimately what the court finds is there is not a breach of procedural fairness here. You were not denied your rights under the Audi Alterum Partum principle to hear the other side, to know the case, and have a chance to meet it. And this is really important because I set the context in this sort of constitutional versus procedural fairness sort of potential clash that this case raises. But you should be clear that that, that clash, if it's going to come, doesn't really come in this case because the court says, you got your procedural fairness. The question that's going to be more interesting that will probably come up sooner rather than later is what do you do when you actually were denied procedural fairness because that was necessary or that was a part of fulfilling the duty to consult. You know, then you're going to get the real question of does this constitutional right trump or limit this common law right of fairness? But in this case, the court said, look, don't really need to answer that because you got your fairness. And so it's a good case on what does it mean to have a right to know the case to meet and have a chance to meet it? What needs to be satisfied in order to say that that right has been properly given to you and any obligation discharged? And what Taseko tries to say is, look, you've got to show me that there is no possibility that I was prejudiced 
by the decision maker meeting with somebody who is opposed to my position. And the court says, you got that wrong, and you got the burden wrong, right? It's not the government's job to positively prove there was no possibility of prejudice. It's your job to show there was a possibility of prejudice. And to show there was a possibility of prejudice, what the court says is you have to show me there was fresh information and that information was prejudicial. If you showed me that this minister had before them new and prejudicial information, I'll accept there's a possibility of real prejudice to you. If you can't do that, then I'm not satisfied. Your rights under Audi Alterum Partum were not respected. So that's sort of the fundamental test you want to take away from this on what your right to know the other side, know the case is. Is there a situation where new or fresh evidence or information has been presented and that information is prejudicial to your interests? If those two things are satisfied, the court will say, whoa, you know, there's a potential problem here. But if you can't satisfy those two things, either the information is not new or the information is new but it's not prejudicial, well then really what are you complaining about? The court talks about a famous case of Kane, um, a case with a university disciplinary committee, a professor who was appearing before that committee. Then the university president talks to the committee outside of that uh, the actual hearing process and gives them new information that's prejudicial to that professor's case. Well, that's the type of thing that's a problem. Here, they say, We've looked at the notes, and we've looked at what was discussed at the, with the minister, and it was the same concerns they've been raising over and over and over again. The same concerns with the project and the way they've been treated. And I mean, that's certainly my experience with Aboriginal consultation, that you know, you're saying the same thing until you're blue in the face to different decision makers. Then they look at this submission that came in later, so this, remember there's the two things, there's the meetings, and then there's this written submission. And the written submission came in in February. And again, they look at it, and they're like, there is nothing new in here. This is all stuff that you've known about, and you previously had a chance to respond to. So the court says, it's not new, and it's not prejudicial because you've had a chance to respond to all this before. No breach of procedural fairness at the minister level, you lose. So if you want to take away the test for Audi Alterum Partum, is there fresh information that goes to the decision maker that is prejudicial? And then how do you cure that? if that sort of a thing happens, well, you give the person a chance to respond. So if you want to show there's been a breach of procedure of fairness, go the extra step and show you were given a chance to respond.
so the final little interesting wrinkle out of the Seiko is we've really been talking about um, the minister decision-making process. Remember, the minister's job is to decide if she accepts that there will be a significant adverse environmental effect from this project. There's still that governor in council decision level. That's the whole cabinet deciding if the decision is justified in the circumstances. And here, the court says, look, if you want to say the minister decision-making process had a minimal degree of fairness, this is even lower. This is at the very bottom end of the spectrum of the fairness that is owed. Because what you have with the governor and council is you have the highest level of government making a policy decision balancing different interests with a broad range of acceptable outcomes. Is it fair to say that the jobs in Williams Lake are more important than the impacts on fish habitat? Sure. Is it fair to say that impacts on fish habitat are more important than jobs in Williams Lake? Absolutely. This is fundamentally a, you know, a polycentric political balancing decision. And the statute provides no procedural rights, no right to make submissions or appear before the governor and council. So the court says, in this case, any minimal procedure you were, uh, you might have been owed was provided to you because you were often given chances to talk about the justifiability of the project. And indeed, you did so at length in the, in the panel review process. It's reflected in the report. You wrote a lengthy letter. You tried to write a submission. This was given to the governor and council. So any right that could possibly have been owed, which is going to be minimal, was more than met. So I, I highlight that because I want you to keep in mind, uh, when you get to these high, high-level cabinet decisions, there very well may be a right of procedural fairness owed, and the court didn't question there was a right of procedural fairness owed. This is a decision by the government that affects Taseko's interests. But at this very high level, you'll have a hard time establishing that there's a high degree of fairness owed. All right, so that's the Taseko case. Um, yeah? So, um, so, say there is an administrative decision which is affecting the rights of First Nations. Yeah. Uh, and they want to bring a judicial review. Can they raise the argument that because they were not there was no duty to, there was no consultation, therefore there was no procedural fairness. Yes, but they don't need to because the consultation is a different right. And so you would, you would just argue this breach of a duty to consult and a, you'd ask for a remedy under Section 35 of the Constitution on that basis. Uh, but you could also say that there is a breach of uh, procedural fairness um, it's just that's a higher threshold, frankly, so you just go with the constitutional argument. So you wouldn't bring the duty to consult in a judicial review? Oh, sorry, yes, you do. You, you, you can do a judicial review of a failure to discharge the duty to consult. 
Um, you could also do it within the context of an action, but it's more effective and efficient usually to do it within a judicial review. Yeah, the, I'm actually right in the middle of this. So um, on site C, uh, West Moberly First Nations brought a judicial review, actually two judicial reviews, one in federal court and one in provincial uh, superior court, alleging a failure to discharge the duty to consult. And those were both dismissed at the appellate level. West Moberly is now doing a, uh, a, an action for breach of treaty. A component of that is whether consultation was adequate. And within this action, West Moberly has full discovery rights. Like, I'm exhausted today because I spent all day yesterday questioning a representative from Department of Fisheries and Oceans under oath. Um, and you know, including about consultation issues. So you'll learn a lot more during the action, and your argument that consultation, consultation might have been inadequate is much stronger, perhaps. But there's a trade-off, because an action takes years and years and years just to get to trial, while a judicial review is a matter of months. So there's a, um, it's a hard call, procedurally, which vehicle you want to, to use. But you certainly are able to argue a breach of duty to consult either in a JR or in an action. Yeah? This judicial review that went through the federal court of appeal, is it because it's pertaining to the decision made like under federal jurisdiction about the environment and the fisheries? So if it was the uh, BC government who um, initially didn't allow the mining proposal, then would it have gone through like the BC court of appeal? Exactly. Exactly right, yeah. We're going to talk more about federal court jurisdiction um, right at the end of the class. But yes, that's precisely it. When a federal decision maker uh, exercises federal power because of the federal court's act, that is, judicial review of that sort of a decision is exclusively within the jurisdiction of the federal court. And so you can have tricky situations where you might have to do two simultaneous judicial reviews. So let's say, um, if you were to Seiko and you lost both your federal and your provincial environmental assessments, you better judicial review both of them. Um, so it can become quite unwieldy, and the, the environment has this characteristic of being a shared area of jurisdiction. You might remember that from like Old Man River and constitutional law, um, Hydro-Quebec. And so you, you can be in this really tough procedural thing where you know, Tosseco had to do two judicial reviews just to get through the federal decision-making process, and they could have had to add on a judicial review in the provincial context also. And indeed, they did have problems provincially because the province gives you an environmental uh, assessment certificate, which expires after five years, can be renewed once, but then can never be renewed again. And so they actually had to bring a judicial review trying to say extend the certificate because we're dealing with the feds over here. So. It really, this is as complicated an area to try to navigate through. And um, you know, if you're on the side of proponents uh, trying to get these big projects through um, the regulatory process, it's just an absolutely daunting area. And they, you know, they hire incredible lawyers, and these lawyers bill on these files for you know years and years and years. Um, 
Okay, so let's move on to delay. And um, delay in the administrative context is uh, governed by the leading case of Blencoe for now, but that may be, the clock may be ticking on that. As I'll mention again at the end of the class, a month from today, on November 8th, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to hear this Abramitz appeal, which is an opportunity to revisit Blanco. So I'm excited to teach you Blanco today, but I want to revisit this issue of delay in the context of our um, administrative law and practice segment, where we'll be looking at the arguments and watching some of the hearing in the Abramitz matter. So we're not leaving delay entirely today, after today. Uh, but to set the stage, let's understand Blanco and have that percolate a bit so we can better receive the arguments for or against changing it in the Abramitz case. So Blanco, uh, the facts are kind of interesting. You've got a provincial minister, uh, an MLA and a minister, who is accused of sexual harassment kicked out of, cap, out of uh, caucus. He's stripped of his ministerial responsibilities. And then two human rights complaints are filed against him. He decides not to run for re-election. I mean, not to run and lose, because he certainly wouldn't have won. Becomes very depressed, medically diagnosed depression. And this human rights process takes 30 months from when it's filed to when it's finally decided. So he says, this is too much delay. Two and a half years is far too long for me to be sitting here with this uh, cloud over my name, this outstanding process, and I demand that this process be stopped, be stayed. You've taken too long, and in fact, you've taken so long, you've lost jurisdiction. So, goes to the BC Supreme Court, Justice Lowry uh, says, you know, you're unsuccessful. He's arguing both charter and administrative law grounds goes to the Court of Appeal, is successful in getting the human rights matter stayed, goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, they reverse, and they affirm the trial judgment that he's unsuccessful in arguing that there's been undue delay. You'll note in the case that there's two uh, bases upon which he says the delay's a problem that requires a legal remedy the charter and administrative law principles. For the charter, what's the problem he runs into? Well, something that we discussed last class, you need a hook for a charter argument. You need to show that a charter right is at stake. He doesn't have a section seven right at stake and he doesn't have a section 11 right at stake. The court says that your liberty is not actually implicated here. There's no fundamental personal choice that's being denied here. There's no security of the person issue here. And 
the security of the person uh, may be at issue if there is serious state-imposed psychological harm. But here the court says, look, I get it that you're depressed and upset, but it's not the state imposing that on you. That's your public figure with the media is hounding about uh, some allegations of impropriety. Uh, that's not because of the human rights process. It's, it's not, there's not a connection there. Section 11 doesn't help outside of the criminal context. There's no freestanding right to be tried within a reasonable time, the court says. So he fails to show his charter rights are at issue in this human rights process. The court says, okay, well, we will consider also this from an administrative law lens. And what the court says is, if you want an administrative remedy for delay, delay, undue delay, is necessary but not sufficient to make out your case. It's not enough just to show there's been undue delay. You also need to show prejudice coming from that delay. The easiest way to show prejudice is to show that delay has impacted your right and ability to meet the case. It's compromised fairness. And if you can show undue delay has led to a compromising of fairness, the court says that's sufficient to cause the tribunal to lose jurisdiction, in essence. We don't think that the legislature would have intended to allow the tribunal to make decisions, to empower the tribunal to make decisions in a circumstance where its undue delay has led to an unfair process. The kind of things you want to look for is undue delay that's led to witnesses' memories fading, that's led to, or coincided with perhaps the death of a witness, the loss or destruction of evidence. These are the kinds of things that can happen with the passage of time. And if you can show that the passage of time that caused these problems was, un was coincided with undue delay, now you've got a remedy. And the remedy in such a circumstance is almost invariably going to be to stay the proceeding and to say, this is over. You can't go forward with this anymore. But the court says, not the only way. To show that this undue delay has caused you prejudice. Even if you can't get over the hurdle of saying this is no longer a fair process. If you can show another kind of prejudice tied to that delay, 
that might be enough to entitle you to a remedy. And this may be the case if you can show significant psychological harm or stigma that's tied not to the underlying facts of what this complaint is about or what this case is about, but to the government action in and of itself. So you can show that this delay in and of itself is causing you prejudice. Uh, an example might be, let's say you're accused of some professional misconduct, and while the process is unfolding, you're being subjected to you know, restrictions on your ability to work. And that's led you to suffer stigma and serious harm. And it turns out that these are being prolonged because of undue and unreasonable delay. Then you may be able to say, I need a remedy. We'll talk in a second about what those remedies might be. So your big picture framework, you want to think, what's the Blanco test? It's undue or unexplained delay combined with prejudice. The prejudice can be prejudice to a fair process. Can also be other forms of prejudice, but those need to be tied to this government action and not to the underlying facts which give rise to the government action. I haven't said contextual factors in, in a 10 minutes, so I'm going to say it now. How do you determine if delay has been undue, you have to look at the full context. And what delay is undue or unexplained or unacceptable will vary from different tribunal to different tribunal. You want to look at things like the complexity of the issue at stake. Does it make more sense that it takes a long time to figure out whether to give Taseco a permit to build this complex mine versus to give you know, me a permit to uh, remodel my kitchen? Yeah, certainly, it's the complexity is on a different order of magnitude. You want to look at the purpose and nature of the proceedings. You also want to consider whether the person complaining about the delay contributed to the delay. Whether the person complaining has waived some of the delay. Said, it's okay, take your time. Whatever it is, or I couldn't do a hearing then anyways. Those types of issues. So it's going to be a, another contextual complex analysis of whether delay 
in any particular cases undue. And indeed, in Blanco, there was some disagreement amongst the majority and the dissent about how to characterize this delay. In essence, what was found is there is this 30-month delay, but six months of it was waiting for a hearing after the investigation was, uh, was completed, and there wasn't any sense that you could have done that hearing more quickly. So lop that off. You've got 24 months left. And they can basically go through and say, I can find explanations or excuses for all of this delay except for five months. You have five months of unexplained delay. And the majority in the dissent seem to look at this in different ways. The majority says, you know, in the full context, that five months isn't that big of a deal and it's not tied to prejudice. You haven't tied that to any specific prejudice. The dissent says five months of unexplained delay is a problem. We can't have that in this type of a context with these types of allegations at issue. So people are going to look at delay in different ways to decide whether it's undue. And the factors that might swing one person to say this is okay in all the circumstances and another to say this is a problem in all the circumstances get back again to sort of personal views and how uh, different people might analyze the same set of facts. Now you had a dissent, strong dissent in Blanco of four judges, Justices Binney, Arbor, LaBelle, and Yakabuchi. Yakabuchi. Again, how myself, I've got a really funny story quickly about Justice Yakabuchi. Um, I rented this house, we rented it for a long time, um, sort of Hastings Sunrise area. And the landlady, I was, she's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. She's like, I dated a lawyer once. She's like, Frank Yakabuchi. <laughs> I, <was like, laughs> I was like, I heard him. <laughs> so, I was like, good Italian guy from the neighborhood. I was like, all right. <laughs> um, so they have this dissent, which says, look, I don't care how you cut it. Five months of unexplained delays are a problem. And why I wanted to mention the dissent is their remedy kind of made some sense to me. And they said, this is a problem requiring a solution. And Mr. Blanco says, great, stop the complaint against me. Stop the human rights complaint. They say, no. What we'll do is we'll order it be heard now on an expedited basis, hear this thing right away, and we'll make the tribunal pay all of your costs of getting that order. You know, elevated your, your full uh, special costs, your, you know, the actual cost to you of getting a lawyer to bring this case forward. And they say, now we've got to remember all the different interests at stake. You have an interest in getting a uh, decision made, but there's the complainants who say that you sexually harassed them, and certainly their interests aren't furthered by me just saying, too much delay, stop it here. So they said in these types of circumstances, a better remedy would be to direct the tribunal to speed up and to punish them by making them pay costs. And in this case, those costs would be really high. So in essence, majority says you haven't gotten over the threshold to show a breach of natural justice. You haven't shown undue delay 
combined with prejudice. The dissent says, you have gotten over the threshold to show a breach of natural justice, but you haven't gotten so far as for me to say, I will stop this process going forward. So what you want to take away from this is that it is possible for a tribunal to lose jurisdiction because they've delayed so far. For the court to say, I don't think the legislature ever intended to allow you to wait so long and to make a decision affecting someone's interests. But to show they've gotten over that threshold and to lose in their jurisdiction, you need to show not just undue or unexplained, unnecessary delay, but also combine that with prejudice. Either compromise fairness, in which case you're almost certainly going to get that stay. They're gonna say, we can't go ahead. The delay has caused us to be unfair. Or some other form of prejudice. If you have that other form of prejudice, maybe you'll get that stay that you're after, but you may also just get an expedited hearing ordered. So broadly, that's the Blanco framework, and it basically has been seen as setting a very high threshold to get remedies for delay. And it's been criticized as out of step with other developments in the jurisprudence since Blenco, which is a 2000 case, which have more directly tackled problems of institutional delay in the Canadian administrative and justice system more broadly. Um, and what's the first case you should be thinking of, I'm sure, is Jordan, right? You must have talked about Jordan. Yeah, no, in first year criminal law. So Jordan is that case which sets sort of guidelines that um, where the court will presumptively kick out a criminal proceeding if it takes too long. I think it's like 18 months for summary convictions and 24 months for indictable offenses. I forget the number, but it, there's, there's a number of months after which um, the court says there'll be a presumptive charter problem. Uh, so Jordan has introduced this idea of guideline time periods into the criminal law. Um, you have the case of Herniak and Maudlin, which is a case about uh, increasing access to summary processes within civil litigation, summary trials, summary judgment. And so there's been an argument that, look, this whole system is broken. We're not getting decisions quickly enough. People get caught in these year-long morasses of just delay and delay and delay. And it's time to revisit Blanco. And that's what the Abramitz case is about. Um, just to give you really quickly what that case is about, uh, you have a lawyer who's um, alleged to have misconducted himself. You have an investigation that was triggered in 2012, hearing in 2017, so five years. They find that there's this is Saskatchewan Court of Appeal found 32 and a half months of undue delay in this process. And during that time, this lawyer had to practice under um, restraints, like supervision of his legal practice. So he was suffering 
direct um, consequences as a result of the government action 